Fabulous. Come on, Callister. Come and read for us. So we'll be reading out of Habakkuk today, Habakkuk 3, which is pretty difficult to find. So if you go to about like Isaiah and go right, um, it's one of those small books. If you've made it to Matthew, you've gone too far. So, and it should be up on the screen. Tyler. Okay, Habakkuk 3, 1 through 2, a prayer of Habakkuk on Shagoanoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known, in wrath remember mercy. Verses 16 through 19. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will patiently wait for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produ produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Beautiful. Now, thanks. Um, yeah, well, my love, just in case you want to sing a song or do something. Yeah. So we have spent some time since January exploring, trying to make sense of the time we're in. COVID, the pandemic, none of us have ever led through anything as close to that, Merrill and I probably our closest was leading a church during the Civil War in South Africa. That's probably the closest we've come to the trauma and the confusion and the chaos and the pain that the pandemic was. And uh, so we've taken this book, Habakkuk or Habakkuk or whatever, and we've tried to use that as a grid to try to process, is there any way that, that uh, things can be clearer to us by exploring the passage? And uh, we've done, I think, a pretty fun job. We kind of saw the progression of lament. It's one of the books, the new, the Old Testament books that, that, that speaks about lament and the power and the wonder and the necessity of lament. You know, if you've been around charismatic circles too long, as I have been, um, somehow there is this idea that you can never lament. If you lament, um, there's no faith in your heart. The Bible doesn't offer us that. The Bible doesn't offer us when Habakkuk says, Oh God, how long, how long, how long, O oh Lord? He doesn't say, You silly boy, you've got no faith. How dare you think that way? There's a validation of the power of lament as it is through the Psalms. And I think we need to develop lament language because all of us will lament. Our parents are all four still alive. We go to South Africa in May where Meryl's dad turns 90. My dad is 89. Our mothers are both alive and they're still married, the two couples and their friends, go figure. I've said to them, would you like to die sometime soon because they're not doing a really good job of that? That's to my parents, not to Meryl's parents. I would never say that. But the point, <laughs> but the point is simply this, there is power and necessity and lament. But then God takes this great prophet on a journey of disbelief. And God tells him what he's going to do. He's going to send the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and they are brutal. 
They are going to decimate Israel. And the prophet is absolutely devastated. He is discouraged to the core of his being. God, how dare you? And the primary idea there, dear friends, is every one of us will find our theological slither challenged. We all craft God in our image. We take a few verses from the scriptures. We all do, including me. Our favorite ones, we preach them, teach them, love them, counsel them, read them many times. You can have a look in my book, which Dana bought me for my 60th. And there are some books like Ephesians that are just browned by my hand and redded by my pen. But Leviticus, no, nah, not so much. You know what I'm saying? It's just not so much, not so much right now. And so what we do is subconsciously we craft a God in our image and then get deeply offended when that God doesn't act the way we expect him to act. Lament to disbelief. And then Habakkuk goes to the city ramparts, the walls of the city, and he just sits. I'm going to wait and see what you do. And I think one of the pastures of true obedience is silence or solitude where we just poise and position ourselves to hear the living God. We don't do that enough in our modern world. It's way too rushed, way too busy. I think often as we got in airplanes tomorrow, I'll fly 16 hours to Dubai. And it probably would have taken Paul about three or four months to get there. There just was time. So from lament to disbelief, from disbelief to silence, and then the climax of the book is the passage that Callie just read. Now, I preached on that a few weeks ago, but I want to land the series by looking at a big God idea that I think this book is all about, and it's the providence of God. Now, it's not a word with which we are very familiar. It's not even a word that we use in our vocabulary, our our modern vernacular. So it requires us to kind of scrum down a little bit and say, what on earth does that mean? It's not in the Bible. It's not within our common word usage. It's not in our common cultural conversation. So what does that mean? And I'm hoping tonight just to spend a little bit of time and marinate all of us on the beauty, wonder, and mystery of God's providence. I want to ask you to identify yourself in the story. Who are you in the story that we're about to look at? Where do you fit in to this great rush of truth? John Mark our dear friend, writes in his very outstanding book, Live No Lies, that the church is facing three, and, and I really want to recommend you read it, Live No Lies. He says there are three tectonic shifts in the Western culture. The first is from the majority to the minority. When we landed 25 years ago, if I, as people said, oh, what have you come here? I'm a pastor. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Not so much now. The prevailing uh, worldview in America when we arrived here in 1996 was Christendom at some level, shape, or form. It's not anymore. We are an overwhelming minority. Secondly, there's a culture shifting from a place of honor to a place of shame. You say you're a Christian, it's super shameful. I mean, I think you know that. And then thirdly, John Mark says, the tectonic shift from widespread tolerance, well, you do your thing, to rising hostility. I cannot believe a reasonable person would ever be a Christian. And so these three big ideas add to our COVID pandemic, 
Habakkuk, trying to make sense of it all, and three tectonic shifts. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with providence. It's a big word, so let's find out what some people say. And I've purposefully put the words on the screen. Maybe that'll help you. It helped me. Providence, then, says the Baker's Dictionary, is the sovereign divine superintendence of all things. Guiding them towards their divinely predetermined end. Sorry it's wordy, a little bit nerdy, but I think it's going to help as we collage and put these bits and pieces together. Toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature. God is taking us back to the beginning as we go to the end. All to, to the glory and the praise of God. So there's some big ideas here. God is the superintendent. He is guiding everything towards their predetermined end, consistent with original creation to the praise and glory of God. This divine, sovereign, and benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in the scriptures. I can't remember where I got this quote from, so I've just put a non. Providence is the unseen work of God by which he upholds, governs, and orchestrates all things. J.I. Packer wrote an outstanding book in the 70s called Knowing God. And, and his comment on the providence of God says this, God's involvement in the world, process, and in the acts of the rational creatures requires complementary sets of statements. Very wordy. This is what it means. A person takes action, but God is providential. An event is triggered by natural causes, but God is providential. Satan shows his hand but God overrules them all. Just a couple more. Rodman Williams is a great charismatic theologian. There aren't many of them around. And he says, Providence may be defined as the overseeing care and guardianship of God in all his creation. Intimately concerned and committed to his creation. The doc Please hear this. The doctrine of providence is not a doctrine of superficial optimism. My heart breaks when I hear people feel obligated to just be hoo, 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 all the time. That's not providence. I want to argue it's not even theological. It's familial subculture. Even Jesus groaned, pleaded with God to let this cup pass from me. And when we live under the obligation of superficial optimism, please hear me, at some point in time we will tap out. Because I'm tired of trying to be someone I am not. Because the church requires me to be ooh all the time. When actually sometimes I'm grieving, I'm mourning, I'm hurting. And it's real and it's true and it's okay. Providence is not superficial optimism. It is far removed from fatuous optimism. Same kind of idea. It seeks to recognize the complexity of the world God has made. The trial and travail in it. And to speak realistically of God's way of acting, it's a doctrine of profound realism. Forgive me for nerding out. I love that. Almost done. Proverbs 69. Alistair Beck, the great Scottish teacher, said, That is the text that describes providence to him. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but God establishes their steps. That's a beautiful passage. Um... Ty, skip through a few. I think we've had enough. Let's go to the Notre Dame historian who says there's strange reversals in the Christian story that Christ is crucified and God appears to fail. 
that monuments of historical goodness, the Roman order, Jewish morality, conspire to do unspeakable evil. Good things come out of hopeless situations. What a great definition of providence. Good things come out of hopeless situations. All right, here comes our story. I want you to go with me, if you can, or just listen. The book of Ruth. And what I want to do is really just anchor our conversation tonight around this story. Because I think it illustrates the providence of God in a narrative form that is exquisite. Now, most of you, but not all, would know what happens. Naomi is married to a man from Bethlehem, Emelech. Um, Bethlehem, remember that little piece. And there's a famine in the land, and so what the two of them decide to do is take their sons and go down across the valley, up the other side to where the Moabites are. Now, historically, Israel and the Moabites killed each other. So this is not just a friendly little neighborly visit. This was a challenge, at least historically. It's a very difficult time. And so the two sons meet two women. Ruth. And opera. And they get married. From famine to feast. Naomi cannot believe how good things are looking for her. They're eating. They've got a cool spot. Their sons are married to gorgeous girls. It is just the ultimate thing. And her husband dies. And her one son dies. And her other son dies. Now remember, dear friends, a widow in those days was a person without means. She had generally, especially living in a foreign culture, had no means of income. It was a desperate, defeated, downcasted Naomi that sets off, tail between her legs, to Bethlehem. She gets to the border of the Moabite country, and she calls her two daughters-in-law aside who are traveling with her. And she says, look, girls, I'm too old. You can't come with me. Even if I got married now and have sons, you couldn't marry them. I want to release you from the obligation you have towards me. I want you to say goodbye to me and go back to your kinfolk, because there you will find the support that you will not get as widows in Israel. And the one daughter, Orpah, kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. It was a deeply emotional moment, a moment of great lament. And she comes across to Ruth. He says, Ruthie, you too. Go and be with your people. And she utters those now famous words, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. What a woman of character. Not that Orpah wasn't. This was her decision. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even in death, uh, sorry, if even death separates us. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. What are we trying to find Providence. From famine to feast, to the death of a husband, to the death of a sons, no tangible means of income. She is returning to her hometown, tail between the legs, without any sense 
of blessing, favor, or goodness. What about Ruth? Well, Ruth loses her father-in-law. She loses her husband. She loses her income. She says goodbye to her family, her culture, her homeland. To what? Nothing. Nothing. Where is providence in the story? They get back to Bethlehem and the women are delighted. No, me, is that you? I can't believe that you've come back to Bethlehem. But she says, oh, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Please, call me Mara. Because the Almighty made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Are there some Naomi's here who've tasted the goodness of God? You have feasted at his table. It's been a remarkable journey, and you have felt the favor of God. Is the favor of God any less on you right now that you don't have a husband, that you don't have the means of income you deserve, or you feel like you should have? Your relational world is integrated, and if the truth be told, you probably would want to call yourself by another name. Meryl and I were driving, was it yesterday or today, and I just said, you know, babe, I don't imagine at our age saying, we've lived this life, but there's nothing. I, I personally, I cannot imagine that. And so they arrive at this town. The one woman has said goodbye to everything. The other has returned to her home empty-handed. And she says, God is to blame. Now, those of you who know the story know well what about, is about to transpire. Ruth finds out that there is a farmer nearby. He's a good man. He's a man of strong character, the Bible tells us. He's a little bit older than her, but, but that's not what her initial intention is. She's walking around in her widow attire. And so she goes at the encouragement of Naomi, her mother-in-law, Omara. And she goes behind those who clear the barley. It's barley harvest season. And she walks behind them because the poor were allowed. It's a bit like food stamps. They were allowed to pick up the bits and pieces Folks, do you understand the desperate nature of this? In that moment, did God seem good? Did God seem kind? Was he the one, the object of my worship, that, that my lips are readily praising him? I suspect not. Two women, two widows, with no means of income, the one who carries herself as the one who has bitterness, and the other, a desperate woman with no means of income. And so they follow behind the harvesters, and she gathers the food and takes it home. Naomi says to her, where did you go today? Where did you get this food? Oh, I went to the farm of Boaz. And Boaz is an interesting man because he's older, as I've said, but he also sleeps with his workers. He doesn't leave the field and go home and sleep in the bed at night, as one would argue would be a good thing. But he sleeps there amongst the workers so they can start nice and early the next morning. And now something particularly intriguing happens. Naomi says, I know him. He's kin. He's one of the family. 
Then she traces it just a little bit further and she said, you know, actually in our family, he's a redeemer guardian. Now that is so foreign to us. Let me explain briefly. In the times of the text, when a woman was widowed and her land was possibly up for being taken from her because her bills couldn't be paid, there is an obligation by a family member, a man, to become her guardian redeemer. In which she, he would go and he would take possession of the land. He would marry her and give her the dignity and blessing that she deserves. It was a beautiful way from kicking people off into the street. And just leaving them to their own demise. But there was a clear pecking order. That the oldest or closest male in the extended family had first dibs. So Naomi says, Ruth, what I want you to do is take off your widow outfit. I want you to put on a beautiful dress. And tonight when Boaz goes to sleep, and the Bible said he had some food and wine and was well satisfied, when he laid down, she was to go and peel the blanket off his feet and go and lie there. Oh, that's so foreign to us. That doesn't make sense. His feet stink. You know, I mean, come on, they've been in the, in the, in the, on the farm all the time. And so she, she looks pretty and, and she goes down and she starts rolling the blanket back. And, and he says, who, who are you? She says, well, I'm the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And he explains to her that he is in line to be the guardian redeemer. So the next day he goes to the city wall where the elders sat and he brings to the family the fact that there's land of Naomi. She's a widow. She's got her daughter-in-law with her. Listen to the beauty of the story. And he says to a family member who is more rightfully able to become the guardian redeemer. In front of the elders, sir, you are first in line. Do you wish to take the land? Oh, said the guy, absolutely. And then Boaz pulls the trump card and he says, then you will have to marry Ruth. And this poor man obviously had a wife or two or three. And he was like, hang no, I cannot have another woman in my world. And he says, I decline. And Boaz is given access to become the guardian redeemer of this beautiful woman, Ruth, whose names mean means compassionate friend or beauty. And he's the guardian redeemer of this woman. What did they think in their darkest hour? We are widows. No one wants us. We're living off food stamps. Who dare even accept us? We are a burden and a blight. Now, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Really? This quiet, nice, good farmer, is he going to be famous around Israel? Well, who's he? Who's ever going to think twice and in two or three generations time about Naomi, this woman who called herself Mara, 
her daughter-in-law that said, I will commit myself to you. And, and, and an ordinary, can I be a little imaginative and say, ordinary looking farmer, why are you that old and you haven't got a wife? He's hardly super stud. No one's going to remember that. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. Isn't that a beautiful story? But I haven't read the best part yet. Because providence is God turning a circumstance around through his provision and his blessing for his greater purpose. Why do we even know of this ordinary guy called Boaz? There must have been millions of them over the centuries. Why do we even know the story of Ruth? No matter how cute she was, it isn't really worth telling. And Naomi, well, she got all bitter and twisted because things didn't quite work out the way she wanted. Well, I'm going to take you to Matthew. And Matthew is Jesus' photo album. Where God pulls it out of the shelf and says, let me tell you about my son. I'm going to tell you about his genealogy. The verse above this one says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. According to the scriptures, she was a whore. A prostitute. It's not the photograph that you hide and no one looks at. It's the one plum center that this grandmother was a prostitute. You want to talk a redemptive gospel? It's right here in Jesus' photo album. That no matter what your sin is, no matter what you may have done or not done, there is redemption in this great and glorious Jesus story. But it carries on. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. This woman who called herself bitter, this daughter-in-law who gave herself to a man by lying at his feet, and this ordinary but good, strong, healthy Boaz, together collaborated by the providence of God to bear the child that would one day be the seed for King David, that is providence. The problem is, dear friends, is we live our lives by the moment. We are rampantly individualistic. We demand our story and our time in our way to make me happy as if there is no before Rahab was the prostitute. There is no afterwards King David is coming from this line. Because we are fleeting in our faith. We ponder, but for the moment, I'm not happy now. I cannot believe in this Jesus. Imagine if this beautiful woman, Ruth, had adopted that posture. She would never have had a guardian redeemer. She would never have had a son who would become the father, grandfather of King David. And if we're impressed by that, then we'd better be impressed by the last picture in the album, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That, dear friends, is providence. The problem with providence, we may not see it in our lifetime. And are you okay with that? 
where God will choose to do something with your life that you may never, ever see. We have the privilege of looking back because that's when we most understand providence. We can look back and say, oh, I never imagined. But those who walk by faith understand the now is but a springboard for the then. That a woman who lay with a man in a field in Bethlehem, of course it had to be Bethlehem, because from that seed, the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem. Providence is the ability to understand that there is something more powerful than our fleeting happiness, our momentary pleasure, the slither of our life that we demand. On a Monday, Meryl looks after our grandchildren, the two who are here. And I popped in at home this past Monday, and I was kind of playing with Delta, one-year-old little girl. And Meryl had to go upstairs to get something. And Delta was happy until Amma was not there. And then she collapsed on a pile on the ground and sobbed as if eternity had just broken in. Hell had made her life what it was. And I could smile there, and I said, Delta. I must just gone upstairs. <laughs> and I think Jesus sometimes says, Really? Really? I've just gone upstairs to get something. I'll be back now. Because providence is God turning goodness from badness towards His higher purpose. I want to take you to two scriptures quickly. Romans 8, one we know well. If you've been around the church for any period of time, you would know it. So let's read it again. Romans 8, 24. For in this hope, providence is loaded with hope. It means God's going to turn things around even in my dissatisfied immediacy. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Please hear that, dear friends. Please hear that. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. There are times my weakness screams at me. You get this, Chris. The public, Chris. You don't know what I was doing at 3 o'clock this morning, lying on my couch, unable to sleep. The Spirit helps me in our weakness when I felt my pulse over and over again to see if I'd gone out of rhythm, atrial fibrillation. Wondering if I should jump up and have some more medicine so my heart doesn't go out. See, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. I didn't. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, say all things. That's kind of very Pentecostal to do, by the way. I just had to have a little fleeting Pentecostal moment. In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to his purpose in all things, Naomi, in all things, Ruth, in all things, Boaz, God works for the good. You will see the king, the greatest Israel, king of the Jews, king of Israel ever at a human level, the greatest warrior, poet, 
who extended the boundaries of Israel more than ever before and since. You will see him. God works in all things. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Dear, dear friends, I understand that sometimes it's so trying to be in the center of the will of God when what my plan is looks so cool. It's not this. One more, one more passage. Ephesians 1, 17. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished. Naomi, God has lavished his grace. Hell no, he hasn't. I'm a widow. My sons are dead. I have no income. No one can look after the farm. I have to send my daughter-in-law to beg for barley sheaths from another farmer. That's not true. Oh, not yet, Naomi. Just not yet. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Are we okay with that? Which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ in him. We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conform. Ruth, everything. When you said no to going home, no to going back to your culture, no to going back to your kinfolk, no to remarrying a Moabite. When you said yes to support your mother-in-law, when you said yes to serve her, even to death. When you said yes to humble yourself and gather the barley leaves, the sheaths. When you said yes to that, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I wonder, I wonder if someone sidled up to Ruth in a little coffee shop in Bethlehem. Say, so one day, you know the words you said to your mother-in-law? They're going to say it at about every wedding. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And everyone gets all sentimentally moved. She said, you're nuts. You're absolutely crazy. Who knows me? I'm a Moabite living in Bethlehem without any income. Who would say that of me? And I wonder, now forgive my creative imagination because this is not scripture. But if she looked at Boaz and maybe a little middle-aged, a little, little chubby, you know, receding hairline. And Naomi says, girl, this is it. This is the best you're getting. And she grits her teeth and she pulls. Sorry, love. I'm just having fun. Just kids having fun. <laughs> and she pulls the blanket back and his feet are, are, are flavorful. And, 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 and she thinks to herself, I've got to do this, man. I've got to do this thing. And someone sat and said, how's it going with Boaz? Well, we're getting married. Well, but you know your great-grandson will be King David. Pfft, you're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. Who am I? Do you know that there will one day be a little teenage girl who will say, who am I? That you would choose someone just like me. And her name was Mary. And she carried them God in her belly. That's providence. 
when God's purpose is way beyond a moment in time, way beyond a current set of circumstances, way beyond your current weakness, challenges, and obstacles, Habakkuk, well, what Habakkuk did is what Mary did as she sang a song. What the woman did with Naomi when they sang a song. When providence hits us, there's nothing we can do but sing a song. Though the fig tree does not bud, that's what providence says. Though there's no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there's no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls right now, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God, my Savior. And then he lands, the sovereign Lord is my strength. Because this is way beyond me. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to tread on the heights lightly. These momentary obstacles. Who in the story might you be? Mary, the little girl who said, God, how could you use someone like me? Boaz, the guy that you think, well, I'm sure God's written me off. I'm a good man. I'm a solid man. I'm a faithful man. Could God use someone like me? Naomi, who carries Mara, the bitterness of a life that's seemingly been brutal to you. A Ruth, a beautiful woman, possibly married a steadfast man, but not her number one lover choice. In all things... God works things to the good in conformity to the purpose of his will. Let's pray together. Your Bible, your scriptures, the sacred text is extraordinary. We are flummoxed by its beauty in the lives of ordinary people just like us. We can so easily identify with these characters around whom your providence is recorded. Habakkuk, the lamenting, bleeding prophet. Paul, the limping apostle to the Gentiles who spent so much time lost at sea, whipped, bitten by snakes. A bitter granny, a beautiful young woman, a faithful man. Providence reigns supreme. And his name is Jesus. Dear friends, I don't know where you are with Jesus tonight. I preach this not because I'm a theologian, although I love theology, or because it's my profession, although I get paid to lead this community. I do it because I believe in it with all of my heart. Providence is exactly what God did with me. A poor kid, Afrikaner kid from South Africa, who has no right to travel the world preaching the gospel. It does require sweet surrender. Jesus, I surrender to you. What I do not see, I embrace by faith. Could you do something like this with someone ordinary 
just like me. We're going to come to communion now, and I want you to do it within that meditation and reflection. God, could you do it with someone like me? Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. It was ordinary. It wasn't specially made. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take it. The invitation tonight, dear friend, is where you see yourself in the story is to take and eat. In the spirit of meditation and honesty, oh God, thank you. Thank you. And then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you, my great guardian, redeemer, Jesus. The central focus of our affection, the true object of our salvation. And he said, take and drink. This is my blood for the cleansing, cleansing, cleansing of sin.